0: In March of 1997, a small religious group, then known as Heaven's Gate, made global headlines when 39 members committed suicide in a Southern California mansion. As the group's name implied, they had particular beliefs about what Heaven was and how to get there. They referred to it as the next level and taught to be eligible for membership in the next level humans would have to shed every attachment to the planet. This meant all members had to give up all human-like characteristics, such as family, friends, gender, sexuality, individuality, jobs, money, and possessions. This was to help them achieve a, quote, higher evolutionary level above human. Not surprisingly so, the first convert to this new religion left her children in order to do so. What eventually led to their deaths was the belief that there was a spaceship hidden behind the Hale-Bopp comet that would be passing near the Earth soon that would take their souls to another level of existence above human, and the only thing holding their souls back from reaching the next level was their bodies. While the circumstances of their deaths were shocking, their actions simply flowed from the beliefs taught by their leaders, known to their followers as Doe and T, whose own influences included new age gnosticism and science fiction. They looked at their bodies as nothing but containers. Their actions as a result, uh, like many other religious systems, um, they perceived the material world uh, as something to be escaped and the headlines that they made 26 years ago were simply what flowed from living out of their beliefs. And yet their beliefs and their behaviors could not be more different from those found among Jesus' first followers. We're going to look at a passage of Scripture uh, this morning that paints a very different picture of what lies beyond the grave for Jesus' followers and sets a very different course for life here on earth. It's found in Luke uh, chapter 24, beginning in verse 33. In your pew Bibles, I believe it begins uh, on page 1,643. After an account of two disciples encountering the risen Jesus, we read this. They got up and returned at once to Jerusalem. There they found the eleven and those with them assembled together and saying, It is true, the Lord has risen and has appeared to Simon. Then the two told what had happened on the way and how Jesus was recognized by them when he broke the bread. While they were still talking about this, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. They were startled and frightened, thinking that they saw a ghost. He said to them, why are you troubled, and why do doubts rise in your minds? Look at my hands and my feet, it is I myself. Touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and blood as, and bones as you see that I have. When he had said this, he showed them his hands and feet. And while they still did not believe, because of joy and amazement, he asked them, do you have anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He said to them, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that is written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. So what do we see in here? Well, first we see an embodied Jesus. Now, right before this passage, two of Jesus' followers very unexpectedly found themselves walking and talking and even breaking bread with the same Jesus they saw crucified on Friday. And as they hurried to Jerusalem to tell others about it, what they had seen and what they had heard, they couldn't even get a word out before they were told, it is true, the Lord has risen and appeared to Simon. When the two told what had happened along the way, how Jesus had rec- was recognized by them when he broke the bread, and in the midst of telling all of these things, You can just imagine the looks on their faces with eyebrows raised to match the volume of their voices, saying things like, wait, you saw him too? He goes, did you recognize him at first? What do you mean he then just disappeared? And in the midst of this cacophony of sound, nobody seems to notice that there's now somebody else standing in the room. We read, Jesus himself stood among them and said to them, peace be with you. Let me tell you, it's a good thing his first word was peace, because we read they were startled and and frightened, and you can't blame them for being a little jumpy. See, they had just seen the one they'd been following for three years, arrested and executed, and Jesus had already told them not to expect any better treatment than the way people treated him. We know from John's account of the scene that it was because of fear of the ones who had got Jesus arrested that the doors of the room had been locked. And now despite locked doors, somebody else quite unexpectedly was standing in their midst. Luke adds that part of their fear was their thinking that they saw a ghost. That is not an embodied person, but something else. And so Jesus made sure that nobody left that room with that misconception. In verse 39, he says, look at my hands and my feet. It is I. He told them to touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. Then he showed them his hands and his feet. Look at what Jesus is telling them to do. Look, touch, see, see. He is appealing to their physical senses to show them it is to show them it's physically me. And Luke also does his best to dispel any notions that the resurrection is anything less than Jesus and the flesh. Verse 34, Jesus appeared to Simon. Simon saw him. Verse 35, the two disciples who had joined him had recognized Jesus when he physically broke the bread. Verse 36, Jesus himself stood among them. He wasn't floating. His his feet were touching the ground. Later, when he appears to Thomas, who would not believe unless uh, he actually got to touch Jesus' flesh himself, Jesus says in John 20, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hand. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. The the physical, bodily resurrection of Jesus is the testimony we see in the Gospels, and it's not just found in those books. At the beginning of John's first letter to the church, he describes the resurrection of Jesus as that which we have seen and heard and touched and so forth. And if all of that wasn't enough, Jesus even passes the fish test. You're like, the fish test? The fish test. He tells them, while we, we read, while they still did not believe it, because of joy and amazement, he said to them, do you have anything to eat? And so they gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it, and he ate it in their presence. Means the hand did not just pass through the fish. He didn't just take the fish up to his mouth, and it kind of like fell to the floor and bounced. He ate it. Jesus passed the fish test. You see, Jesus and Luke and more go out of their way to show that the resurrected Jesus had a real physical body. And he passed through death and had come out the other side a corporeal being. And yet it wasn't just his, his old body, but, but a better version of it, what you might call physicality plus. As the theologian N.T. Wright put it, Jesus has, it seems, gone through death, and out the other side into a new world, a world of new and deathless creation, still physical, only somehow transformed. You see, there's a continuity, but also a discontinuity. Like the passage right before this, we read how it it took a while for the disciples to recognize Jesus. He could enter rooms, even if the doors were locked. He could appear and he could disappear, but still make a good piece of fish disappear at the dinner table the same way you and I make it disappear at the dinner table. Jesus unexpectedly has a resurrected body, and he goes out of his way to show his followers uh, so that his followers can touch and and see and, and hear him as he is, leaving them without a doubt that he had been resurrected. And that's been the confession of the faith for Christians ever since the beginning, what does that mean for us? A while back, I was having lunch with someone when they asked me, Keith, does it really matter whether or not Jesus rose from the dead? And I was a little taken off guard, and I think mentally I immediately started going into apologetics mode, like, well, you know, Paul says that, you know, this is like where Christianity falls or rises, and and I realized he wasn't trying to debate me. He wasn't looking for a, a good defense. He was just asking, I believe this. This is real. So, so what are the implications? Maybe because somebody had asked him the same question. Maybe, out of curiosity, maybe because there was a biopsy coming up and they knew it could be cancer. I mean, after all, facing the question of your own mortality has a, a way of making otherwise hypothetical questions very real whatever the reason that they asked it, the question that I heard that day was one that we would all do very well to be asking. Does it matter that Jesus physically rose from the dead? And if so, why does it matter? What does it tell us? Why do we need to hear this? Well, put simply, if the resurrection gives us an embodied Jesus, then Christians have an embodied faith. First, an embodied faith is is based on something tangible, something physical, real, Jesus' resurrected body. We talked about this at length on Easter. You see, it's not just being hooked on a feeling or high on believing something that you wanted to believe. Notice how they react when they actually see the resurrected Jesus. Jesus says, why are you troubled? Why do doubts rise in your mind? Luke tells us they still did not believe even after Jesus started talking to them and showing them his body. That's not how you respond to something you expected to happen or even dreamed was possible. In fact, the writer of the Scripture reading that you heard earlier, the Apostle Paul, did not want to believe Jesus rose from the dead. He even persecuted people who said that he did. But eventually he, just like Jesus, just like like the first apostles, they had to wrestle with what they had not even imagined when the resurrected Jesus came to them. And the biggest implication that he and everyone else has to wrestle with because of it is this. Jesus' bodily resurrection proves his claim that he is God. In the religious world that Jesus was living in, anybody's claim to even be equal with God would have been considered blasphemy, a a sin worthy of death. And yet Jesus' claim to deity was so clear towards the end of his ministry, he got groups that never would ever dream of working together to conspire together to find a way to get him put to death. And yet Jesus overcame death. Before Jesus, death was undefeated. But Jesus rose from the dead, just as he said it would happen, even if his disciples struggled to understand it at the time. And now, the God who took on flesh was right there in their midst. And yet for Christians, it's not just that the object of our faith has a body, but that the direction of our faith is toward an embodied existence. Our hope is an embodied hope. Did you notice what Jesus says? He says, it is I myself, not I'm in here, uh, but I'll I'll discard this body, this earth suit later. In other words, uh, what they see and what they touch is not something temporary but permanent. It is I myself. In the incarnation, as another pastor put it, God took humanity into his being forever. And yet Jesus' resurrected body was not a brand new body, but a renewed body, one that they could recognize as the same Jesus that they had followed. And if we are united with Jesus by faith, then Jesus' resurrected body is like like a sneak preview of our future reality. Think of it like watching a movie trailer you know, what you see and you hear when you take in that smaller portion of the story, usually shown in your, somewhere in your living room, is meant to build your anticipation when the whole, for when the whole story is shown on a much bigger screen somewhere else. But the hook that really draws you in on this trailer is that when you realize this story isn't just about Jesus, it's about you too. Not just what did happen to Jesus, but what will happen with his followers. In other words, Jesus' resurrection body was a picture, a motion picture, you might say, of hope beyond the grave. Or maybe to use another image, the Apostle Paul describes uh, Jesus' resurrection body as the first fruits. It's an agricultural term for the first sample of a crop that shows you both the nature and the quality of the rest of the crop, saying Jesus' resurrected body is like a foretaste of what's to come for his followers. As we read in 1 John 3:2, when he appears, we shall be like him. And while the promise that we shall be like him is certainly more than just a physical thing, it's not less than a physical thing. As you heard in the scripture reading in in 1 Corinthians 15, we will be changed. Comparing the burying of a body in the ground to planting a a seed or, or sowing, Paul writes, what is sown is perishable, but what is raised is imperishable. What's, it's sown in dishonor, but raised in glory. Sown in weakness, but raised in power. Sown a natural body, but raised a spiritual body. And Jesus is showing them the prototype. In other words, you'll still be you, but better. Changed for the better with an imperishable, glorious, spiritual body. Yet, an embodied faith is not just about renewed bodies. It's about a renewed world. In John 14, Jesus says, I go to prepare a place for you. Not a dimension of consciousness, but a place. And it fits well with the rest of Scripture. In Genesis 1 and 2, we read about a place called the Garden of Eden. A garden paradise with rivers and and trees where God and humanity dwell together in perfect, unbroken community. Then in the next chapter, we read about how our parents' first sin drove humanity out of that garden, out of it where our bodies and the earth itself now bear the consequences of, of human sin, what's often called the curse. But then we read in Romans 8 about how the earth itself is groaning, but with an end point in mind, groaning until the effect of human sin upon the world is finally undone. And yet what God started doing, even in that third chapter, chapter of the Bible, and continues doing all the way to almost the end, leads to a scene you see in the last two chapters of the Bible, Revelation 21 and 22, where we read about another place, a new heaven and earth, the new Jerusalem. Not a place that we ascend to, but a place that comes down to us, where everything that we had in the garden is restored, and more so. Where we again see rivers and trees, even the tree of life, where god and humanity dwell together in unbroken communion once more where there will no longer be any curse or sin or death or mourning or crying or pain and what began in a garden ends in a garden city as tim keller summed it up christian salvation is not about escaping the material world but heaven coming down to this material world to cleanse it of all hunger sickness, disease, death, injustice, and more. You see, an embodied faith is never just about us. It's about the whole world that we live in. And the resurrection of Jesus is the first taste of God's new creation. Now, admittedly, this is very different from what people commonly assume to be the Christian view of of life after death, or more specifically, life after death life after death, which is a whole sermon in itself. But, uh, in other words, not about, you know, harps and, and angels on clouds, not a disembodied existence, but an embodied one. Not about escaping this world, but seeing it renewed. And it's not just something in the distant future someday. You see, Jesus' resurrection marked the beginning of this new creation that we can start to experience now. In 2 Corinthians 5.17, we read, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old is gone. Behold, all things have become new. In other words, resurrection newness has already broken in for this world among Jesus' followers on the micro scale, among individual people for whom the old has passed away and the new creation is actually here now. Now, yes, there's more to come, a lot more to come, but it's not all about what's yet to come. There's a present reality that we can experience now. Which leaves us with the million-dollar question. If the resurrected Jesus is an embodied Jesus, and if the Christian faith is an embodied faith, what do you do with that now? If it's true, how do we respond? Well, we should take our cue from Thomas. As we mentioned earlier, Thomas wasn't in the room when Jesus appeared to them and, and ate that fish. He famously said, I'm not going to believe unless that he's risen unless I see the mail, nail marks in his hands, unless I put his, my finger in the holes in his hands and my hand in his pierced side. That's quite the punch list. Thomas sometimes gets a rap, a bad rap, as, as doubting Thomas. But you know what? They all struggled to believe Jesus was risen before he actually appeared to them. And even then, they didn't believe it right away. But when Thomas saw the risen jesus and jesus tells him put your finger here see my hands put out your hand and place it in my side you know how doubting thomas answered him my lord and my god see the only fitting response to the resurrected jesus is to come to him as your lord to bow down to him as god You see, Jesus' resurrected body, the aspect that made him approachable to Thomas, remains to this day. He will never take off his humanness. Jesus remains accessible to us today. Now, maybe here this morning, you're here, and maybe you wouldn't consider yourself a Christian. Or maybe you say, "Well, I believe in God, but I'm just not quite sure what to make of Jesus. Maybe you're spiritually seeking But as long as the question of God is still up in the air for you, as as long as you, you don't believe that you've found God or that you can find God, you realize you can still live however you want. I mean, how do you know? Because Jesus was raised from the dead. That's how you know. Jesus' resurrection means the search for God ends at his feet. As another pastor very directly put it, when you come to Jesus, you don't go on searching, you repent. You see, in Revelation 21, Jesus famously says, see, I am making all things new. And that includes people. Like you and like me, Jesus is making new people. And the way that we cooperate in that is first by repentance. Turning away from whatever else was the center of our lives and letting Jesus occupy that spot. And in doing so, letting him make us new in this life cooperating in the whole process as paul writes in colossians 3 verse 10 put on the new self which is being renewed in the knowledge after the image of its creator see after the image of god whose image we see supremely in the resurrected jesus one whose ministry was both in word and in deed and in that we see what god intended for humanity all along as Paul writes in Ephesians two ten, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This, uh, this week, my wife and I saw the trailer for a new series uh, called Renovations. So here's the concept. Jeremy Renner, a.k.a. Hawkeye, in the Marvel movie uh, cinematic universe, finds old decommissioned vehicles and he buys them, he makes them his own, and then he and his team renovate them, making each of them into something new, something that can serve their community in a new way. A shuttle bus, in one episode, is remade into a mobile rec center for Big Brothers and Big Sisters of Northern Nevada. A transport bus is transformed into a music bus, a space for the the youth of Chicago to come after school to write play and restore music rather than anything else they might get into. A city bus is converted into a mobile dance studio for a foster care organization in Mexico. A delivery truck is converted into a water filtration truck for those in India who lack a reliable source of clean water. All of them made new, and not just for their own sake, but for the sake of others. And if that's what an actor can do, with a vehicle, how much more can God do with people who have been recreated according to his purposes? Like we said before, an embodied faith isn't just about us. Jesus isn't just making people new. He's making all things new. And if Jesus is our Lord, then we're going to be about the things that that he is about. If Jesus is about the renewal of the world, then the same goes for his followers, who ourselves are being renewed, renovated, and repurposed by our creator. The risen, embodied Jesus shows us God has not given up on the physical world, and neither should his people, which means we don't just respond by coming to Jesus as Lord in repentance and faith, but also by working for a better world. And embodied faith, you see, isn't about escaping the physical world, it's about seeing its renewal, seeking its renewal, yes this world is not all that there is but it's still incredibly important we see that in how christians historically have lived out this faith showing incredible engagement in the world even from the very beginning particularly in their concern for the poor for the sick and for the vulnerable in society and not just among fellow christians but among all peoples how when the plagues of the early centuries hit the ancient world and and Everybody fled the cities. It was Christians who stayed, caring for the sick and, at the risk of their own lives, saved countless other lives. It was the followers of Jesus who would establish the first hospitals and orphanages. And in more recent centuries, organizations like Henry Dunant's, The International Red Cross or Mother Teresa's Missionaries of Charity. For centuries, the greatest patrons of artists and musicians were Christians commissioning great works that are still seen and heard and loved throughout the world today. In our modern world, people tend to turn to modern science as a way to transform the world for the better, and yet the scientific revolution actually rose out of Christianity from people who came to see Jesus as their risen Lord who reigns over all things and therefore longed to study the world that he reigned over, that he governed, so they could engage it for the good of others. See, Jesus came here to transform our reality, and he invites his transformed followers to join him in that work. Sadly, in some circles, working for the good of the world has been compared to uh, polishing the brass on the Titanic. Now, if the spiritual is all that matters and everything else is going down like a ship, then somebody might think, why waste your time? And perhaps it was meeting people that had that mindset that led rise to other people saying to them, don't be so heavenly minded that you're of no earthly good. But if Jesus has his body, a renewed body, a foretaste of heaven coming down to earth so that it can all be renewed, if that is what the hope of of heaven is about, then being heavenly minded will actually make you of immense earthly good. As C.S. Lewis put it, there is no good trying to be more spiritual than God. God never meant man to be a purely spiritual creature. He likes matter. He invented it. And he's going to restore it. And knowing that helps us better understand what Paul is talking about in 1 Corinthians 15.58 when he writes, Therefore, my dear brothers, stand firm, let nothing move you, always give yourself fully to the work of the Lord because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. Not just because people's souls will go on forever, which they will, but because God has a plan for people's bodies as well, along with the rest of the world he created. That actually helps us better understand the mission of God's people, of Jesus' followers. Usually when people think of, like, mission Aries, uh, what often comes to mind is those who engage in evangelism, discipleship, Bible translation, or church planting in particular parts of the world or communities. And yet it can also look like medical missions. There are people who have been members of of this church who grew up overseas, but they came here for medical training only to return to that part of the world as missionaries, where they use their training to serve the needs of those with disabilities in ways that nobody else in that country has yet been trained to do pastor that I met some years ago once served in a church that supports a missionary who uses her medical training to help restore sight among the afflicted in Southeast Asia. Many of you are familiar with Christian organizations like Mission St. Louis and Restore St. Louis, and some of you have actually participated with them, uh, maybe helping uh, families in financial need to have an affordable Christmas, maybe building wheelchair ramps for widows, maybe tutoring students that otherwise might not make it to graduation. So why did these people, why did these organizations choose to do the things that they do and and where they end up doing it? It's because the one that they follow is not indifferent to the plight of those that need their care. He is making all things new. When his first followers saw him risen from the dead, what overwhelmed them, Luke tells us, was joy and amazement. But how do we get to that point ourselves of joy and amazement, this life-altering, overwhelming joy over the risen Christ? How is it possible? Well, Jesus tells us when he says, look at my hands and my feet. See, Jesus' whole body was right in front of them, so why does he tell them to look just there? It's because of what happened to his hands and his feet on the cross Now, yes, the scars and the holes um, right where the nails pierced him on Friday would have made it abundantly clear it was Jesus. But there was more than just that. At the end of the passage, Jesus says, This is what I told you while I was still with you. Everything must be fulfilled that was written about me in the Law of Moses, the Prophets, and the Psalms. Then he opened their minds so they could understand the Scriptures. Part of the everything Jesus mentioned that must be fulfilled which they came to understand included these words from Isaiah 53. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds, we are healed. The wounds that Jesus shows his disciples were not just a sign of who he was, but who he was for them, what he did for them. Back in the Garden of Eden, we learn about the punishment of sin. For rejecting God uh, was was death. The punishment for placing ourselves on the throne rather than letting God occupy that. It's high treason. It's it's a capital offense. And yet Jesus himself was, was sinless. He even challenged his opponents to find one sin he committed, and they couldn't. They could only make things up. Which means the death that Jesus experienced on that cross was not on account of his own sin, but those of his people. Because Isaiah goes on, saying, We all, like like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him, Jesus, the iniquity, the sin of us all. In other words, Jesus was their substitute, our substitute, doing all he did on behalf of another. And as Jesus opened up their minds to understand the scriptures, to understand the meaning of what had happened, not just what Jesus did, but what he did for them it changed them, finally understanding what Jesus meant in Mark ten forty-five when he said that he came to serve and to give his life as a ransom, literally a payment for many. Friends, when you put your faith in Jesus Christ, coming to him as your Lord and God, you too can have the peace that he welcomes with and rest, knowing that the work of satisfying God's righteous requirements has been fulfilled because Jesus did it in your place. And the payment for your sin has already been made because Jesus did it in your place. And in doing so, Jesus has overcome our greatest enemies of sin and death so that you too can be a new creation. An offer that he extends so that you too might find joy and amazement that makes you want to fall at his feet as your Lord and as your God to serve him with hope beyond the grave to make his mission your mission, wanting Jesus to open your eyes to understand the scriptures so that you too not only know what he's done for you, but know what it looks like to live that out in your own time, in your own place, because when you look at his hands and his feet, you too now see them as not just what he did, but what he did for you. Tony Campolo tells this story. I went to my first black funeral when I was 16 years old. A friend of mine, Clarence, had died. The pastor was incredible. From the pulpit, he talked about the resurrection in beautiful terms. He had us he, he, uh, he had us thrilled. He came down from the pulpit, went to the family, and comforted them from the 14th chapter of John. Let not your hearts be troubled, he said. You believe in God, believe also in me, said Jesus. Then he spoke about the place Jesus went to prepare for Clarence. And then, for the next 20 minutes of the sermon, he actually preached to the open casket. Now that's drama. He yelled at the corpse, Clarence, Clarence! He said it with such authority, I would not have been surprised if there had been an answer. He said, Clarence, there were a lot of things that we should have said to you that we never said to you. You got away too fast, Clarence. You got away too fast. He went down. He, he went down this litany of beautiful things that Clarence had done for people in his life. When he finished, here's the dramatic part, he said, that's it, Clarence. There is no more to say. And when there's nothing more to say, there's only one thing to say. Good night. Good night, Clarence. He grabbed the lid of the casket and slammed it shut. Good night. Clarence, boom. Shockwaves went over the congregation. As the preacher then lifted his head, you could see there was a little smile on his face. He said, Good night, Clarence. Good night, Clarence, because I know, I know that God is going to give you a good morning. The choir stood and they started singing on that resurrection morning, We shall rise, we shall rise. We were dancing in the aisles and hugging each other. I knew there the joy of the Lord, a joy that in the face of death laughs and sings and dances, for there is no sting to death, a joy that comes from looking first to the hands and the feet of the risen Jesus, hands that point us back to the life that Jesus gave for us, hands and feet that point us forward to the life that Jesus will give to us, all to empower us to live the life that Jesus calls us to live now, living out our embodied faith. Let me pray for us.